All right, Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So we're, uh, we have our first case of uh, a, a pair of Meta Ray-Ban smart glasses in the studio today. How do you feel about that, Derek? Very bad. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Yeah, our producer Adam is sitting behind us just recording this whole thing on our uh, on his Meta smart glasses. Wow. It's the first person I've encountered who has used those. So Yeah, I, I put them on. I tried to talk to Meta and... Um, it didn't work so right. that well, felt very the, satisfying that it didn't work there's the there's the fact that it didn't work and then there's just um all of the other privacy weird things that it does record you you know tell people what you're what you're standing in front of what you're looking at so we should start down. asking for comment through the glasses just like we reached out to meta through their glasses to see if they had a comment for comment yeah, back, yeah. Meta, connect me with your press office Maybe yeah. they'll start answering our questions then. That, that's what I'm saying. Like, why not every every avenue? You got to be a diligent reporter. <laughs> All right, I love it. We're gonna be talking today about uh, your reporting on uh, social media account security for the federal government, following up on the breach of the SEC's account on X. That's coming up today on Safe Mode. Now that we've talked about Meta smart glasses. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl. I'm your host of Safe Mode. And welcome to the show today, Derek Johnson, CyberScoop reporter. Hey there. And Rebecca Heilwell, how are you doing? Good, how are you? So a couple of weeks ago, the SEC's account on X was breached. Derek, can you tell us what happened? For folks who missed this news, the SEC's X account got hacked. Tell us what happened. Yeah, well, so the, uh, yeah, I think it was on January 9th, uh, the SCC, the official account, um, you know, basically put out a tweet saying that they were uh, going to approve a, a, a Bitcoin exchange traded fund, um, which they did eventually do. But uh, that particular tweet was not done by an employee at SEC. Um, someone had used a SIM swapping attack to uh, get control of a number that was associated with their, tw uh, their Twitter or their X account. And then because the SEC had actually disabled uh, multi-factor authentication on their account, that allowed the attacker to take control of the account, put out this tweet. There's a lot of uh, market moving uh, type activity that happened um, before the SEC eventually got control of the account. Um, and then I think they approved it like the next day. So um, that was it in a nutshell. Yeah. So here at the CyberScoop offices, we were pretty appalled when we found out that the SEC's Twitter account doesn't have multi-factor authentication and this led us to wonder why how how does a government twitter account not have multi-factor authentication and rebecca and derek you have gone down the rabbit hole to try to figure out when a government social media account is required to use two-factor authentication and the results of your investigation are kind of baffling rebecca tell us about it yeah so i think what's interesting about this is that you know before this happened um I was sort of familiar with the idea that a government account might be required to have MFA in certain circumstances, or at least certain government systems. Um, and, you know, it's the kind of thing that happens and you're like, wait, shouldn't there be a rule about that? Did that violate any rules? Um, 
And yeah, we went down the rabbit hole. We found a sort of document um, related to governing those social media accounts, specifically for the SEC that someone had gotten through FOIA previously, and it, it didn't mention anything about MFA. Um, and then we, you know, also expanded the search to the broader um, number of agencies covered under the Chief Financial Officers Act. And it seemed like a lot of them, you know, a lot of them did use this a security measure, but the reasoning they cited differed widely. And it sort of became apparent, um, or at least we could not figure out if there was any actual government-wide rule that would require a federal agency to set up MFA or two-factor when um, operating a social media account. And that really matters. Like, it's not just the SEC, which can move markets by accidentally posting misinformation, but imagine like an elect, like the Election Commission or imagine FEMA or things like that, the, or, you know, the International Space Station posting something wrong. The stakes of not securing a government social media account are, are really high, which makes the lack of clarity of rules there kind of interesting. Yeah, Derek, you and I, we sit next to each other in the office, and uh, I've been enjoying you telling me about your conversations with people during the reporting process for this. And I'm wondering if you might kind of share with the audience what it's been like going to government officials and policy experts and asking them what rules are in place. What kinds of answers have you been getting from folks there? Yeah, I mean, you would think that this would be um, <clears throat> a relatively straightforward kind of question and answer exchange. Um, you know, are government agencies, and I think we need to separate uh, just in our minds, you know, SEC is an independent uh, agency, and so they're not necessarily subject to the same kind of rules that maybe other CFO Act agencies are, but just the question of, are federal agencies required to use something like multi-factor authentication for their social media accounts? Now, I, I do want to, you know, emphasize that uh, there was a, a cybersecurity executive order that got put out in 2021 that does require multi-factor authentication. Um, but so far as we can tell, that applies uh, and that the, that order was crafted to apply to uh, internal uh, systems, public-facing systems that the government owns and manages. There's kind of a gray area, sort of a loophole when it comes to um, what the government's authorities might be around something like a third-party application like Twitter. So, you know, we... <laughs> I, I broke my spear trying to uh, to, to get a, a clear answer to this. We talked to uh, OMB, which um, has authority to set things like security policy throughout the civilian federal government. We talked to um, uh, CISA, which um, has the ability to issue binding operational directives around security to civilian agencies. Um, neither of them could really give us, uh, I mean, OMB just didn't answer us, but but uh, but even CISA's uh, answer was, um, was not clear about uh, A, a, whether uh, there was a rule like that in place and B, whether they had the authority to do it. And then I also talked to, um, you know, I talked to the former federal CISO, uh, you know, someone who um, would be really, really well positioned to to know that. And, you know, he told me, number one, he didn't know. And number two, it was a great question um, that we were asking. Um, uh, you know, I talked to f federal identity experts. I talked to congressional staffers who were who were whose bosses were, were looking into this and were interested. Um, nobody could say. Uh, with any kind of certainty whether there was a rule around this um and if so what kind of what kind of authority or or or, or order they might cite to do it so. yeah I, I think when we started talking about this story internally you know my initial reaction was okay account security for social media i mean really who cares but then when you start thinking about it like the things that you can do with a government social media account that get 
it, it, it could get pretty appalling pretty quickly. And I think, Rebecca, the example that you mentioned is great in the context of the election year that we're in. You know, if you were to hijack, um, you know, a, um, a social media account belonging to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is responsible for securing large parts of the election infrastructure in the United States, and you were to put out a series of tweets talking about how this... Um, election infrastructure had been hacked and you were manipulating vote totals, you could do a lot of really nefarious things very quickly just by hijacking a social media account. Yeah, it's really stunning. You know, there's actually a federal registry of government, so federal so social media accounts called the U.S. Digital Registry, which is kind of fascinating. And, you know, like the government operates hundreds and hundreds of social media accounts. The scope here is is really vast. I think one thing that was interesting that came about our reporting is we were trying to figure out like, you know, for federal, for some federal agencies, like when did they decide to do MFA if they did do it? And some of it was pretty recent. Um, the, the Department of Defense sent out guidance only like last April sort of recommending, saying that MFA was required and recommending um, certain apps that you could use for that. Um, the Department of Labor said that change only happened last year, like an implementation change following, following like a policy change um, related to, to leadership there. And I think that sort of shows how widespread the approach can be and also shows like, you know, we're talking about whether it's the Defense Department, Department of Labor, like someone involved in the election, the stakes are really, really high. Like even if you don't really care about Bitcoin prices, um, this sort of shows what could be possible. Yeah, um, I think it, there's a bit of poetry to this idea where like, you know, you could do election manipulation using, you know, by hijacking government social media accounts. But in this case, a government social media account uh, it gets hijacked and it's just used as part of a crypto scam. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we, so that like you have, you have a friend who's had their social media account hijacked to push crypto scams right now. You have something in common with Well, the and that happened with, um, the, the Mandiant Twitter hack that happened earlier that was used for right. a scam. And then a couple of years back when all these high profile accounts were taken for uh, Barack Obama's account, um, then candidate Joe Biden's, uh, account and a whole bunch of celebrities, all of it was ultimately leveraged for this like really petty, um, uh, you know, meaning uh, 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 scam that people were running. Um, I think what it shows you is that you know the holes are there, and um, for a more uh, malicious and 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 uh, uh, prepared actor who might be able to take over a, an account like that, you could you could potentially do damage. I will say the speed with which. Um, government accounts on X get uh, you know uh, responses from 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 X X's safety team to to um, either shut down the account or kind of figure out what's happening. I mean, this happened in a very very quick period of time, and I think that that kind of shows that um, you know even as there are holes like this, that companies like X are are um, are are moving faster when it's a government agency who this happens to. Um, but certainly, you could see all kinds of use cases for using this in a way that is much more damaging than like, um, you know, trying to trying to get people to download a wallet drainer or, 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 or what have you. Yeah. All right. Well, Derek, Rebecca, thank you so much for your great reporting on this. If we get some some clarity on what rules actually apply, you'll, you'll have to come back on the show and explain. Love to. Yeah, definitely keep our eyes out for any memos that might be coming. From. And if you're a listener to the show and you know what rules apply to government social media accounts, please get in touch. Thanks, guys.
Coming up next on Safe Mode, I'm joined by Craig Newmark. Since founding Craigslist, Craig Newmark has gone on to become one of America's leading philanthropists. He joins the show to discuss the cybersecurity projects he's funding. My interview with Craig Newmark is up next. I'm joined today by Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist. Founded in 1995, Craigslist helped shape the modern web as we know it today. It reshaped online economies and how people bought and sold goods. But today, Craig Newmark is far more known for his philanthropy, which spans issues of cybersecurity, technology, and journalism. Craig Newmark, welcome to Safe Mode. Hey, I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to chat. So in thinking, in preparing for this interview, I, I was really, I was trying to reflect a bit on, on Craigslist and its place in the modern web today and, and, and what a pioneering place it really was. And I think for a lot of people, it showed the promise of what could be done online. You know, here was a place you, you could find an apartment, you could buy a rug, track down a misconnection on the subway. All of this, these ordinary features of life were playing out online in a way that wasn't really possible before. But, you know, since Crisis was founded in 1995, the internet has obviously changed a great deal. And I'm wondering maybe if we might start off this conversation with how you think the internet has changed since you founded Craigslist in 95 and whether you think it's changed for the better. Well, back in the uh, mid nineties or even earlier, people figured we could use the internet to make life uh, better for everyone. This reflects what I learned in uh, Sunday school, frankly, you need to know when enough is enough. And now and then you, uh, want to be your sister's keeper or your brother's keeper and just give people a break. I don't think that spirit has disappeared from the internet, but it has been drowned out by people with different objectives. Uh, I have no uh, objection to people making lots of money on the net. I guess I encourage it, but they have to remember some uh, balance. You uh, want to do well, but then you want to uh, help other people out. You want to give people a break. Speaking of, kind of folks who are, who are making a great deal of money, you know, on the on the internet today, what do you think of of the approach of you know some of the companies that are enormously profitable on on the web today? Do you think they're they're acting in ways that you know you, you use the phrase uh, you know my brother's keeper? Um, do do you think they're they're embodying that spirit? I think uh, there are a number of big companies which need to enlarge and empower their trust and safety teams mm. because it's only those companies who can protect uh, the country and their uh, customers, their users, when it comes to, well, you got to do things like helping people uh, protect uh, the, uh, their reputations. You got to help seriously fight uh, crime online. Um, and so this is the time to get smarter about trust and safety, to use uh, large language models to figure out stuff which uh, may not be good for their customers and to all pitch in. Um, unfortunately, we do see a lot of uh, big companies cutting back on trust and safety, sometimes eliminating it altogether. Maybe that's not such a good thing. Mm. I'm glad you brought up trust and safety teams. Uh, you know, 
Craigslist, I think in its early days, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, was a pretty freewheeling place, right? And then as it evolved, the company had to put in place more controls on, on what types of content was allowed on the internet. I mean, we can use Craigslist kind of as a, a case study in a way for the way that content moderation on the internet has worked. I'm curious what you think of how content moderation and trust and safety teams, what you think of that discipline as it exists today and, and whether you think it's made the internet a better place or not? Well, Craigslist from the beginning was pretty serious about uh, trust and safety. Um, for example, way back, maybe uh, 20 years ago, um, I kind of uh, got out of my lane and went to a meeting of the Secret Service-based Electronic Crimes Task Force, mm. uh, where cops and uh, Secret Service people, mostly focused on financial crimes, told me that dot-coms could do a better job of responding to uh, subpoenas. I heard that and then uh, talk to the Electronic Frontier Foundation because they're uh, really good at reminding me of uh, matters like uh, due process and the Bill of Rights. Uh, they helped me understand the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. And then I went back and uh, spoke about that with Craigslist management. See, at that point I had uh, already stepped down from management and I was acting as a customer service rep. Not a manager, but uh, just a CSR and uh, that made a big difference. And in that spirit, I'd like to see uh, everyone on the uh, internet operate. Our country is really good in terms of its ideals, the stuff in the Bill of Rights uh, and focusing on due process. So I think we need to follow through with our ideals better. And that's true of uh, at least American-based company, which is all I really know about. Um, but the deal is that we got to help out the cops while respecting the Bill of Rights and due process and treating everyone fairly. Another lesson from Sunday school is treat people like you want to be treated. Crisis was in some way a, a, a pioneer of the platform economy. You know, you, you were connecting buyers and sellers and that idea of a platform economy is one that is central to the web today but it's evolved into into something very different right you know today we have airbnb is is a platform connecting owners and renters and airbnb is taking a commission off of those transactions in a similar way to the way that craigslist makes its money right although craigslist obviously makes takes far fewer commissions and only on a select number of transactions um, Craigslist uh, charges people who normally pay for ads, and the idea is to charge them for ads which are more effective than the usual stuff. The philosophy is to minimize uh, the monetization of Craigslist. Again, nothing altruistic. It just goes back to those Sunday school lessons where uh, um, you basically... Well, the model is basically doing well by doing good. Right. And that's worked out uh, much better than I expected it to, which means that I need to do something with the results, hence all the contributions I make to uh, both uh, cybersecurity and the uh, area of military families and vets and some other areas too. Yeah. 
so I, I think if you were to talk to executives of some of the big platform companies today and you, you were to urge them to minimize the monetization of their sites, I think they would look at you like a, like a crazy person. I'm wondering, what do you think of the way that the, the kind of the platform economy has developed and, and the way that it looks today? Well, I get uh, looks like I'm a crazy person no matter what I'm doing. <laughs> so that's part of my branding, I guess. Uh, basically, I just, uh, well, I don't talk to the big guys directly because really I'm not important enough to do so, but I do trust, talk to trust and safety people a lot and try to find out how I can help them uh, do things uh, better because what they need is empowerment, serious empowerment, so they can do things like uh, fighting the actions of our uh, foreign adversaries, as well as just protecting their customers better. I don't know how effective I am regarding that, I've decided I need to to learn to be not only a squeaky wheel, but a far squeakier wheel. Mm. So let's get into that. You, you've committed to giving away the fortune that you, you've made, and you have a particular focus on cybersecurity in, in your philanthropy. You've made a series of grants in this uh, area in the last uh, couple months, couple years. Curious, why the cybersecurity focus for you? Well, again, this goes this goes back to being a kid. I mean, I grew up in the 50s, seriously, when patriotism was a real thing. Parents were uh, grew up during the greatest generation. Uh, my dad fought in the war, although I have a feeling uh, that most of what he did was to, he was uh, yeah, he succeeded in combat by doing really good paperwork, <laughs> but. This was still a serious thing. Everyone was expected to play their part during the war. And so I figured I should uh, follow through uh, because these lessons of patriotism were all around me in Morristown, New Jersey, where Washington and the Continental Army spent two really tough winters. So I figured the least I could do is, is to support the people defending our country uh, largely in the uh, cybersecurity realm, because cyber war is a thing that's in the here and now. I'm also trying to help out the people who are defending the country, like active service members, their families, and for that matter, veterans. So where, where do you think that private philanthropy can make a difference for cybersecurity? Um, there's a number of areas where our government uh, given rules and regulations, has difficulty funding the fight. For example, I work with Shadow Server. Shadow Server is uh, really good at finding vulnerabilities throughout the entire internet. They're really good at fighting ransomware, uh, tr tracking uh, ransomware payments, setting up honeypots, that kind of thing. But often it's very difficult for the government to directly support a group like that so basically, I've uh, I've spoken to a lot of cops saying, hey, they really rely on Shadow Server, even if they can't formally say so. So it's up to uh, funders, including me, to do a good job of helping out. Uh, for that matter, we need a lot of really good cybersecurity education, uh, K through 12 level, uh, civilian level, and education for people who want to be cybersecurity professionals. And I can do a great deal of that along with other nonprofit funders. Um, and that complements 
what the government can do. The idea is to step, to step up to help protect the country, to uh, enlist in this matter, and uh, follow through, and to just not stop. How are you thinking about cybersecurity threats related to the election year? Yeah, we're, we're going into um, not just an election here in the U.S. This is um, a year in which there will be elections affecting something like half the population in the world. Um, and, you know, many of these elections are going to be contested on online systems, rife with vulnerabilities. How are you thinking about cybersecurity threats as they relate to the election and the kind of projects that you're funding? Well, to give them the, uh, to give credit where credit's due, Homeland Security CISA under Jen Easterly has done a great job in this area. I know they're also working with people in other parts of the government, NSA and FBI, to seriously protect the country. The big unknown this year is how our adversaries are going to use AI, uh, generative AI, and large language models to uh, attack the elections. And I don't know if people know how that's going to handle, that's going to be handled. But the idea is I'm supporting the people really getting into it and figuring it out, particularly within the uh, Aspen Digital Group. The deal is the uh, Aspen Institute people have a separate project looking exactly at this, how AI is going to be used by our adversaries to attack our country and then to figure out countermeasures. This is still in early stages. Um, I'm uh, committed to this and following through, and I really uh, am emotionally invested in it because in 1973, I wanted to go into natural language understanding and uh, what's now called large language models. But even back then I realized I might want a job someday. So I went into more conventional uh, software engineering. Software engineering was in its infancy then. Uh, so the deal is I find people who are good at this stuff, uh, help them out with uh, the resources I have, and then to get the word out better. Are there any, um types of projects in your portfolio where, you know, you wish that kind of more private money w was getting off the sidelines? Do you think that that private philanthropy can be doing a better job of funding any, you know, types of projects in your mind? I think uh, private philanthropy, well, people need to step up and to do a much better job in uh, specific areas of cybersecurity um, on the education side, uh, tools, uh, the cyber trust uh, nutrition labels. The deal is that right now uh, our country is seriously under attack by our adversaries and philanthropists need to find out how we can better alert the entire population, how to tell people that everyone needs to play their role, just yeah. like in World War II, and to provide them with the knowledge and tools to fight the fight. Uh, for example, we need to do a much better job with passkeys. Uh, we need to do a much better job of telling people to update their systems. And we need to get the whole uh, cybersecurity nutrition label thing going because you really want stuff you bring into your home to have been tested in good faith that they're reasonably secure. The idea is that uh, 
Oh, we bring home uh, internet things that can be used in kinetic warfare. Uh, for example, if you have an internet con internet connected oven, um, that could be hacked to burn the house down. Burning one house down may not matter in cyberware, but burning a thousand down or more could cripple our first responder network. For that matter, you hack a car during rush hour, and one car can cause a small problem in a traffic jam, but a hundred cars or a thousand cars can cripple internet, uh, well, can cripple transportation infrastructure in a way that can really hurt a uh, country. And that's a tactical attack. But the thing is that that's the kind of thing I worry about. Uh, for that matter, people's home systems could be used as munitions to seriously disrupt infrastructure like electrical or water distribution. So we got to let people know this and we got to let people know how to fight it. And philanthropists can get the word out. These attempts to label, you know, the safety of uh, digital systems is it's been a big priority for the White House. And it's an interesting one, right, where. You know, when you buy something, you buy a car, for example, you have a safety rating on it, you know how it's going to perform generally in an accident. Um, and there are standards around how to build a safe car. There's not the same for digital products. And this is, you know, as you describe, right, something that folks are working hard trying to figure out uh, how to label a device as, as secure and, and what that actually means. I, I'm curious you know, what your sense is of how the development of these labels is doing, you know, are we able to, at this point, kind of figure out how to label products as secure? Where are we in, in terms of, you know, these types of labels maturity now? Um, the progress is better than people know, but they're still not quite ready to, to publish much stuff. The group which does the uh, best job in terms of household stuff and cars, the group which uh, will be uh, pioneers in uh, national security in this way, that's Consumer Reports. They have uh, 80, 90 years worth of experience evaluating high technology in terms of what it can do for us and what dangers it might pose. Uh, back then, washing machines were high tech and they did a great job for that. So actually, Consumer Reports, seriously, is the group most in the, uh, which is the spearhead, the tip of the spear in terms of protecting us in this area. I need to get an update, frankly. I need to bug them to maybe move faster. And uh, that won't be for another uh, five or so days because I meet with them now and then and help uh, fund them pretty heavily. The deal is that this is another area where private philanthropy can help protect the country the theme is that the way it's going to help protect the country is by helping regular people, civilians, who, well, we need to play a bigger role in this. And uh, Consumer Reports is leading the way. The theme, again, is that everyone needs to pitch in. Are there projects within you know, cybersecurity or the industry that, that you think 
are missing. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we think of cybersecurity as something with potential societal consequences, is there work that needs to be done that you think is is being neglected? Are there any particular projects, you know, that you would love to be funding right now, but you just don't see people doing the work? Um, it's uh, really strange for me as a nerd uh, with a uh, real focus on being socially awkward to say the following, but what we really need is a campaign to let everyone know this is like World War II. Mm. Everyone needs to play a role. Here's what's coming. Here's what you need to do about it. So right now our foreign adversaries are planning on disrupting infrastructure and so on. But right now there's a window of opportunity for everyone to pitch in. But the uh, we do need software and systems deployed that everyone can make use of. For example, right now, uh, passwords are kind of a mess. It's too easy to talk help desks into disclosing them, too easy to uh, fish people for their credentials. But what I need to do is find a good way to tell people that uh, when they go to a site and they need to log in, but if, uh, if somebody wants to, they can log in through one of the big guys who is using passkeys and already has their credentials. How do I very briefly and to the point explain to people that this is legit and it's a really good way to start moving away from passwords? We need good ways to tell people that when a system uh, is telling you it needs to be updated, you really got to update that. Mm. We need good ways of telling people that where they work, well, they are relying on their IT shop to update their systems and to keep them updated because typically out of date systems and servers are how bad actors get, uh, get in and install ransomware. So the technology, well, it's challenging, it's hard, but what's more important is how do you tell people to play their part? Mm. We're speaking on a week when we've seen a, a string of layoffs at, at some big media companies, uh, among them LA Times, Time Magazine, uh, Sports Illustrated. Another one of your major philanthropic initiatives is around tr trying to fund trustworthy journalism. I'm wondering, first off, just whether you see any overlaps between you know your funding of journalism and cybersecurity. Do you see them as being complementary in any way? Um, I do see... Uh journalism and the uh, a trustworthy press as helping uh, defend the country in uh, high school history, uh, going back to my youth again, um, as well as learning about the due process and the Bill of Rights, I learned that a trustworthy press is the immune system of democracy. We need people of all backgrounds, uh, inc you know, income levels, uh, to, do th to get a good journalism education and then speak truth to power. Um, now that I'm a New Yorker and read a lot of New York history, I see that the City University of New York for almost 200 years has been about uh, getting a good education for people who are growing up with uh, no money, you know, all backgrounds, and people can get good jobs and get into the middle class, maybe do even better than that which is kind of like my own history. 
And so we need people of all backgrounds to get good jobs and then speak truth to power. And I'm finding that CUNY journalism actually is uh, getting, you know, it's people, real jobs, paid better than industry average for uh, for new journalists, and also with uh, with relatively little college debt. So that's my real focus now, because again, I do believe in treating people like I want to be treated. Uh, I got a break in my uh, college education. Um, I got a, a good education, lots of scholarship, and left school with very low student debt. And I figure I've done well, and what I should be doing is help other people do well. Again, the notion is that I want to treat people like I want to be treated, and now and then I should be my sister's keeper or my brother's keeper. I'm uh, not good enough at that. I need to do a better job at it. And uh, sometimes I don't know what to do because, you know, I'm not all that smart. But City University of New York is getting the job done, so I should do better. And I will be doing better, but I can't pre-announce anything. Well, Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think that's a great note to end on. Appreciate this conversation. And, and thank you for all of your great work to fund all of these great projects it's my pleasure and you know like the batman says i don't think i'm the uh, nerd you want but i'm the nerd you got <laughs> i'm glad it's you and not another nerd craig <laughs> thanks for listening to safe mode a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by cyberscoop if you've enjoyed this episode please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends your mom your dad Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.